0: going to say something, but it didn't come quick enough. So, Thank you, musicians. Uh, that was Kathleen back on the, am I not on? Is this working? Is this good? Nope. Um. that good? Uh, let's see here. How's that? All right, we'll do this. that better? All right. Great. Well... I just said thank you to the musicians for playing, as we're so thankful each week to have them. And it was nice to have a classics service. It was pretty amazing that on the Titanic, so many knew that hymn, a different time of the culture, right? If you tried to do that today, um, you wouldn't have as much success. Who knows if they'd even be thinking that way. But thank you, Paul. You always bring out something about the history of the hymn. We appreciate that, so thank you. And thank you for leading us. Uh, Before we begin, let's uh, just take a few moments and pray silently, ask God to prepare your heart uh, as we open up his word uh, together, and then uh, after I've given you just a few moments, I'll pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you that through Christ we can know the reality of those words to be nearer to you, to be brought into the eternal fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit through Christ, died and crucified, risen, having sent the Spirit, drawing us into this everlasting fellowship you have granted to us through all of eternity. The first fruits, the beginnings, we experience here the full expression once we leave this world and enter into our heavenly kingdom. Ultimately, looking forward to the resurrection, when we're clothed with our heavenly bodies, imperishable, to be with you forever. Uh, We ask now, our God, that as we look at your word and the topic of the Christian and the internet and social media, that you would guide us, that it would be clear that we would, as a result of our time together, not only today, but the next few weeks, we would think more clearly Not just about our use of the internet, but the reality of our spiritual lives. And we commit these things to you, and we pray in your name, our Lord. Amen. Well, as promised, uh, we are going to begin today uh, our look at the Christian and the internet and social media This will be the last of our topical messages that we've done for a long time now, really. And we'll begin into a new book in the next few weeks, probably maybe the next three weeks or into a month. So I don't know what book that's going to be yet. If you have any suggestions, I'm open. I have several in my mind. Some have mentioned some, but I am eager to get back into Scripture. But I'm also eager to cover this topic, which is so important because it's such a major part of our lives in this day and age, namely our relationship to the internet and our use of social media. So an extremely practical topic. This morning my goal is merely to introduce the idea, to give the big idea of how we as Christians are to think about the internet, some of its particular dangers. In the weeks ahead we'll take some of the things that will only be barely mentioned today and we'll look at them in more detail. Uh, so that, that is to come. So Don't expect all of that now, but I do want to just introduce the idea to us and really even just give us a broad picture of the idea of technology and the internet uh, in itself. So let's begin with that. Let's begin by addressing the idea of technology and the internet in general. Let's just consider the term technology. In its broadest sense, it refers to any mastery over creation by man to serve his purposes. It can be good or bad. Uh, One person defined it this way, the tools and crafts created by humans and other species to help them adapt to their environment. I'm not quite sure where they got the other species part. That's like really, really broad. I guess if a monkey uses a rock or whatever, uh, that's counting. But, But for our purposes, our focus on technology would be man's use of this creation to his own ends. Whatever he develops as a tool or a process to achieve his purposes and his ends. In that sense, then, technology is a reflection of God's mandate to man in Genesis 1, 26, to rule over creation. And it is then also a reflection of God's image in us. So technology in and of itself is a part of the creation mandate. If no sin entered into the world, technology would still be here. Advancements would still be made. Man would still manipulate with their creativity, with their intellect, with their knowledge, the elements of this creation to advance their purposes. So technology in and of itself is, in that sense, you could say, neutral. It is our use of it that makes it good or bad. Let me give you the idea just of the word itself. The Greek term in scripture from which one of the roots, the root ideas of technology comes is technon, surprise, surprise, It's used two times in Scripture in the Gospels, and actually both of those usages in Matthew 13 and Mark since are in reference to Jesus. The same incident, but it's in reference to Jesus, and it's translated as carpenter. A standard Greek lexicon defines it this way. It's one who constructs, builder, or carpenter. In wider Greek literature, the root includes such things as a contractor or an artisan. So, in other words, art. It has the idea of creativity. Uh, embedded in it. Now, variations of this term are used to refer to God, interestingly, as the craftsman of the universe, the designer of the universe, of all of creation. That's in Hebrews 11.10. Paul, in another version of this word, is called a tent maker. We read that uh, this morning. Or a wise master builder as an apostle, a wise master builder given to help establish the New Testament church. So the idea of technology, then, is a blending of the root with the word for knowledge. So a general definition would be this, and I got this from this ever-reliable source of Wikipedia, although I did confirm with others, as would always be wise to do. Uh, But here it is, and this is a fair, fair definition of technology. The collection of techniques, skills, and methods and processes used in the production of goods or services or in the accomplishment of objectives such as scientific investigation. Now repeat that back to me. (laughs) No, the idea is still it is a manipulation of creation. It's a use of creation to achieve the ends of man's. And it includes the idea of the, the processes and techniques and so forth. For our purposes, however, in these next few weeks, I'll be using the idea of technology in an extremely narrow sense, in a very narrow sense. And in this way, particularly, I'll be referring to technology in terms of electronic items it's produced that connect us to the Internet, electronic devices that connect us to the Internet, and in all of that's many forms and uses. But this also brings up, then, another part of the topic of this message, and that is the Internet itself. while there's a long history to it, broadly, the Internet was developed around in the 60s as a government project and it was for use primarily by the, the military and academic institutions related to the government. Uh, it was intended, as one described it, to build a robust, fault-tolerant communication via networks. And so it was largely a, a closed system used only by government for communication and among academics. Although its public commercial use began in 1989, it was between 1990 and 92 that the effort of computer scientist Tim Berners-Lee made the web interconnective, and another man by the name of Mark Andreessen, working through the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, NCSA, at the University of Illinois was instrumental in launching a browser so the ability to surf, as you were, as it were, the internet named Mosaic. And this made the Internet truly multimedia and catapulted us into a new era. And this new era opened up then a world of information, access to marketing, communication, and connectivity that has changed the world. In a book from 1995, actually, soon after the introduction of of the Internet to sort of the mass uh, population, uh, one described it in his book this way, There are two ages of the Internet. Before Mosaic and after, the combination of Tim Berners-Lee's web protocols, which provided connectivity, and Mark Andreessen's browser, which provided a great interface, proved explosive. In 24 months, the web has gone from being unknown to absolutely ubiquitous. It was absolutely amazing the spread at which access to the internet so changed our culture. For those of you who don't know, the idea of ubiquitous is ever-present, always, everywhere. It's there. It becomes a part of our daily lives. And it is the ubiquity of the limitless resource of the internet combined with the ever-present technology that lets us have has unrestricted individual access that has changed the course of our culture the very way that we live as humanity. Humanity. It's fascinating that it hasn't been around very long, and yet it's the world that, for some of us, our children were immediately born into. They can't even imagine life without a tablet and a phone that you actually used to have to stop at a payphone or whatever. That seems like so long ago. And in some ways, it really is. In fact, the, the ever-present reality of technology and the Internet... The amazing resources that lie at the hands of our finger or at our fingertips day in and day out has had massive, massive consequences. And one of those, recognized really early on with the, the access that was available to everyone, was its ability to take on really even divine characteristics. And by that I mean in terms of what man attributed to it, almost a religious significance. Uh, listen to this, as one describes this, and this is a fairly long quote. I'll be giving uh, quite a few quotes, and we'll be touching on some scriptures along the way, but this is mostly just to introduce the idea of it. We'll look at some text more specifically in the weeks to come. But listen to this description. Consumer, demanded reach, consumer demand reached a fever pitch prior to the iPhone's 2007 release, with Apple acolytes camping out to get theirs. Giddy tech analysts declared, "Much like the Western calendar marks time before and after Jesus Christ, I am certain that the mobile telecoms world will count its time in two eras: the era BI, time before the iPhone, and era AI, time after the iPhone." Communications professor Heidi Campbell and Antonia C. Plastina of Texas A&M tracked how the iPhone became divine. Gizmodo blogger Brian Lamb mocked a Christmas speech by Pope Benedict XVI that asked, Is a Savior needed? Lamb answered this, Of course we still need a Savior. And hopefully our shepherd, Steve Jobs, will unveil Apple's cell phone thingy, the true Jesus phone or J phone, in two weeks at the Mac World keynote. It shall lift the hunger and disease you speak of from the land as it will cure the rabid state of mind infecting Mac fanboys like yours truly. In fact, the term Jesus phone caught on, becoming both a term of enthusiasm and derision with the Canadian National Post mocking American gullibility in this way. The iPhone cometh, the day the mute will talk, the deaf will hear, and the lame will walk. In other words, it really replaces God. It replaces God. Speaking of Steve Jobs, a 1981 Times Magazine article said this, Of him. He possesses a smooth sail pitch and a blind faith that would have been the envy of early Christian martyrs. He is positively hypnotic when he takes the computer gospel to the young. Now, while many aren't going to be as religiously crass as these and others that could be repeated, the reality is, practically speaking, for many and for a culture at large, the iPhone or smartphone and tablet technology has replaced the need for God himself. In, any way, in other words, it's taken on some of his own attributes. Let me just describe that a bit. For one, it's omnipresent. It's the idea of its ubiquity. It's always with us wherever we go. It's omniscient. Just ask Siri for anything you want to know and you can have int- instant access to it. It's omnipotent. At the click of a button it can deliver all my desires and has the potential to cure the world. It has it's all benevolent, satisfying my every whim and desire instantaneously. Indeed, these are things that used to be or in large measure were recognized to come solely from God. There is nothing it cannot do. It entertains my children, it gives me directions for wherever I want to go, it finds me when I'm lost. It provides me with endless music, movies, information, or entertainment. It's there to take pictures. It provides access to the lives of countless people, even the world. And it helps me to cook, exercise, know the weather, and manage my relationships. It has, in fact, become the center of universe in our culture. One says this. The iPhone is always on, always wired, always with us. It wakes us up, putting a song in our hearts. It delivers text messages and email from friends and family throughout the day. It accompanies accompanies us when we travel, offering directions and restaurant recommendations. It can almost feed us or at least get food delivered to the door. We check in with it at night before we close our eyes. The iPhone orders our lives in comparable ways to praying the hours in the ancient church. There is the constant temptation to relate to the iPhone rather than to our world. It is a convenient filter for screening calls, keeping colleagues at manageable distance. It provides a safe place to hide when we're anxious in a crowd. We avoid awkward moments by fading into our phone. It prompts us to look down rather than up, to ask Siri for answers rather than our friends, our parents, or God. The iPhone is our most valuable possession and our closest companion. It records our lives, broadcasts our photos and thoughts, and serves as our traveling studio and electronic megaphone. Indeed, in this sense, Steve Jobs' dream has come true. He, in fact, had, as part of his vision, Steve Jobs, who is responsible for the personal computer and much of the technology that defines our culture now, at least in spearheading it, He had as a drive, he had as one of his key motivations to create a product that would be available to all, that was not simply a tool to be used, but rather was an extension of ourselves. That's what he wanted it to be. Not simply a tool, but in his own words, a part of you. And so because of its ubiquity, because of what it offers Because of the very intent of design by the one who gave it to us, technology, and again I'm using that in terms of phones and tablets, those things connect us to the internet, becomes then one of the ultimate tasks of our heart and the spiritual reality of us. Technology then is an ultimate revealer of the heart. As we, as people, as man in general, is faced with new technology, there is the opportunity for much good or much harm, as there always is with advancements. And in this sense, then, you could say, again, that technology is neutral, but its use is not. In other words, you could make that comparison to like a gun, right? A gun is an evil. A gun sits on the table. It's the person who picks it up and uses it, either for good or for evil, and so, in some ways, it is with technology. The potential outcome of technology has everything to do with the user, which has everything to do, then, with the heart. And the great draw on the test and the temptation of the Internet, then, is this. That anything and everything your heart desires and your mind conceives is at your fingertips, Essentially, it provides a platform for expression of every thought and self-gratification and immediate fulfillment of every desire, and all restraints are gone. Because it also offers something else, anonymity. Something that we'll talk about down the road. But because of these things, it then serves as the ultimate revealer of spiritual reality. One has said this, too often what my phone exposes in me is not the holy desires of what I know I should want not even what I would think I want and especially not what I want you to think I want my phone screen divulges in razor sharp pixels what my heart really wants the glowing screen on my phone projects into my eyes the desires and loves that live in the most abstract corners of my heart and soul finding visible expression in pixels of images and video and text for me to see and consume and type and share. This means that whatever happens on my smartphone, especially under the guise of anonymity, is the true expose of my heart, reflected in full-color pixels back into my eyes. So our use of technology becomes uniquely in our age one of the most immediate reflections of our own heart. And spiritual reality. In this way, it gives a new application to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says this Do not store up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. Verse 21 of Matthew 6 For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And although the immediate context there, of course, is wealth, the storing up of treasures on this earth rather than treasures in heaven, the universal principle that applies to all is this where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so the rise of technology provides the new opportunities to know what we treasure. So questions we ask ourselves are, what do you find most preoccupies your heart and your thoughts? How much of it is centered around your phone or electronics in general? He ends that little section there in Matthew chapter 6 with this, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. We could say you cannot serve God and the Internet and our electronic toys. Either we will delight in spending time alone with God, or we will be preoccupied with the worship and service of God in our hearts and our time given to serve Christ, to grow in spiritual disciplines and holiness, or we will be preoccupied with Twitter, Facebook, online shopping, Instagram, news, entertainment, or whatever else things that will consume our time and affections through these little devices. The phone reveals this. It reveals what we worship. It reveals what we truly love. So as technology is available, it introduces a new set of choices, temptations, and consequences. A whole new realm that enables our hearts to be exposed and our deepest desires and longings to be expressed within this new era. So, then another point then is that technology then calls for wisdom. It calls for wisdom. The worst thing that we can do with all that is available to us and all that is at our fingertips is to be unthinking or to think superficially about the choices that we make and the opportunities that lay before us and the consequences our choices will bring. So just one example, and again, we'll talk about these things more down the road. But one example of superficial thinking would be like this, to think that internet or social media is not different than any other activity, any other way of connecting with people. In other words, to say playing a game through the video gaming on the internet or some other kind of game with a phone is the same as playing a game with friends, a board game or whatever. That would be superficial thinking. Or to be totally unthinking altogether and assume that internet social media is neutral and therefore set no limits or restraints on its use by yourself or for your children and simply to adopt it wholeheartedly as the way things are, the way that it is. No more harmless than anything else or any other advancement that has ever been made. Now either of these two errors have dominated our relationship to the internet, social media, and the new technology of electronics in general. And yet, an almost blind, unthinking acceptance of these new technologies comes with monumental, though largely unintended, consequences. Listen to how one writer put this. Unfortunately, it seems that we, as a society, have entered into a Faustian deal. I didn't remember that either, I looked it up. Faustian is an old German tale where a man made a deal with the devil to receive all of his pleasure, earthly pleasures, worldly pleasures, and knowledge. That's the idea. So we've entered into a Faustian deal. Yes, we have these amazing handheld marvels of the digital age, tablets and smartphones, miraculous glowing devices that connect people through the globe, and can literally access the sum of all human knowledge in the palm of your hand. Amazing. But what is the price of all this future tech? The psyche and soul of an entire generation The sad truth is that for the oh-so-satisfying ease, comfort, titillation of these jewels of the modern age, we've unwittingly thrown an entire generation under the virtual bus. Just unthinkingly, it just happens. The new gizmo comes out, we get it, we use it, it's how life is. But do we stop and ask ourselves the questions, why do we use it? Why do we love it? How do we use it? What effect is it having on my lives? What are the short-term effects? What are the long-term effects? And this is, in fact, being recognized by more and more, even from those within the industry, who are lamenting their role in providing something to our culture that has had such devastating effects. What are some of these effects? Let me just give you a few. And again, I'm just introducing ideas. One is this, it has physiological, in other words, effects on our body, and psychological effects on our mind and the soul. Let me explain this just a bit. The express goal of technology, and when I say by express goal, I mean by those who present it to us. I mean by those who are the CEOs, the designers, and the gurus of the tech world. Of Silicon Valley is often used just to capture all that together. The express goal of technology giants is to enslave you to their products. As a matter of fact, one writer noted that in an interview with Anderson Cooper, he says this, former Google Pro- product manager Tristan Harris told him, that is Anderson Cooper, Silicon Valley is in- in- intentionally engineering your phone, apps, and social media to get you hooked. There's a whole playbook of techniques that, use, that are used to get you using the product for as long as possible. Every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what did I get. This is one way to hijack people's minds and to create a habit. They put a lot of money, money, research, and energy into designing a device that will make you enslaved. Or addicted, whatever you want to say. But the idea is being enslaved to it. There is a great deal of research... And intention behind creating an advice and an environment in the use of that device that makes you always think there's one more thing to see. There's one more thing to find out. There's one more angle I haven't looked at. There's one more review to read. There's one more product to search for. There's one more option. It's designed much like the casinos of Las Vegas to keep you entrapped and engulfed in that world so that you lose track of everything else. It's designed to that end. The reminders of the limitless opportunity for something novel, something more, are intentionally worked into the technology to enslave you and to drive you to look for one more thing. As I just mentioned, if it's shopping, it's the need to check one more site, compare one more price, read one more review. If it's pornography, it's the lure to see one more person naked, to view one more sexual scene or encounter and each one more strengthens and embonds the enslavement and the bind that it has on our heart and on our soul of those who give themselves willingly to it it is illustrating in some way the principle that Jesus mentioned in John 8:34 everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin another means of creating enslavement is through the manipulation of the, uh, the produ- uh, to produce dopamine in the body. This is a physiological effect, actually. I found this very interesting. One, one person said this. Brain imaging research is showing that glowing screens, like those of iPads, are as stimulating to the brain's pleasure center and is able to increase levels of dopamine, the primary feel-good neurotransmitter, as much as sex does. So in other words, that, that part physiologically... That creates the sense of pleasure within us that's related to many things, food, sex, entertainment, so on, is manipulated by these electronic devices. Dopamine is caused by the use of drugs, exercise, even food. In fact, the effect of this on the body in a positive usage is so strong that they now have therapy, pain management therapy. This is interesting. It's a virtual reality game that was designed actually for those who were uh, victims of extreme burns, who were in constant pain, uh, who were on morphine long-term. This new virtual reality technology uh, is given to them and actually what it produces in terms of the dopamine effect is so effective Uh, that they actually go off of the morphine and find more comfort and escape from the pain in this virtual reality. It's all the way that it manipulates the mind, physiologically, and then what that produces physiologically in the body. The production of it through electronics and the corresponding enslavement in it engenders through such powerful stimulation has been epidemic. In fact, it has been variously called electronic cocaine, and that was by the director of neuroscience at UCLA. A U.S. Navy researcher called it digital pharmacaea. and Chinese researchers called it electronic heroin. The prevalence of the effect of this uh, ability of virtual reality and technology to create dopamine within the body is so excessive and so great that one has noted this, China has identified Internet Addiction Disorder, IAD, as its number one health crisis. This is from a book that was written in 2016. With more than 20 million Internet-addicted teens, and South Korea has opened 400 tech addiction rehab facilities and given every student, teacher, and parent a handbook warning them of the potential dangers of screens and technology. That's today. Today. Now, just as a side note, something we'll mention down the road, interestingly, in the United States, just the opposite reaction. There has been, and there's a history behind this, an almost wholesale adoption of technology in schools with tablets and in the education system, despite the evidence that shows that there are greater costs to that than there are benefits. And I don't mean just financially, I mean in terms of education and childhood development. One is goes, goes on to says this. Uh, the effect of the intensified production of dopamine by continual exposure of electronics to children is astounding. Again, one noted, children with still developing brains just aren't equipped to handle that level of stimulation. What's more, an ever-increasing amount of clinical research correlates screen tech with psych- uh, psychiatric disorders like ADHD, addiction, anxiety, depression, increased aggression, and even psychosis. Perhaps most shocking of all, recent, that again, this is from a book in 2016. Most shocking of all, recent brain imaging studies conclusively show that excessive screen exposure can neurologically damage a young person's developing brain in the same way that cocaine addiction can. Again, I'm not agreeing necessarily with all those categories and that thought. This was written by a non-Christian. But what I am saying and illustrating here is the absolute dramatic physiological effects that electronics has on the body, and particularly children. In many other studies, it's shown to mimic the effects, particularly long-term, of narcotic drugs and drug use. And in fact, the same as slaving properties behind much drug enslavement is found even in phones one of the strongest ways that this is demonstrated is actually in the world of gaming and I'll mention that in the future there's some incredible incredible effects this has so much so that in fact the department of defense the department of defense has a whole research wing or element to it that is researching the effect of gaming on military bases because it leads to childhood neglect crimes they even have a new epidemic in terms of this, where people check out of society, have increased uh, violence and aggressive tendencies, especially in children. Some even, whom they can go to their room, they hide out in it, so lost in this gaming world uh, that they have bottles lined up in front of the TV, just so they don't have to stop to go use the restroom. They stop eating, and the child neglect part is stop caring for their children. So it has massive, massive effects. Not all go to that extreme, but the causes that produce that are available in some level to all. Now, of all the massive implications of this, again, some of which we'll touch on down the road, probably the greatest is this, and this is in relation to our children, is that it blinds the mind and the souls of our children, and as well as us, to the true glories of God, the pleasures of God. His glory in Scripture and creation, which is all around us. Now, we see this all the time, don't we? You could be in the most beautiful setting, and what do you see if you look around with families on vacation? Right? Is that wrong? As a matter of fact, again, it was so much in Asia that they had an old commercial. I, I, I don't know if I could find it now. You can find it on YouTube. Where they had a whole commercial campaign of of trying to get people to put their phones down and, exact, and, and actually enjoy the people that are around them. It's actually a sweet commercial. But the most important reality is that it glues and takes the eyes of our children and even our own eyes when we're so committed to it and it blinds us to those glories of God that are all around us. Again, we know this, but I think one of the most striking illustrations came from one author. And let me just tell you this. I found it to be very powerful. And he's recounting a vacation in Greece in which he found himself with his wife on the island of Crete, actually. He says this, describing the place where they were. It was a remote coastal village of Lutro. It's a magical place, stunning, sun-drenched Greek beach with laughing bathers splashing around in the clearest blue water. A beautiful, tranquil place that time forgot. There are no cars, no convenience stores, no TV, no flashing lights, just traditional whitewashed houses and a handful of small waterfront inns and their beachfront taverns. The seclusion of the traffic free village makes it an ideal playground for kids kayaking, swimming, climbing of rocks, games of tag, leaps into the water. It is a kid's paradise. That was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I don't know, George, have you ever been there? I don't know if he's here. He's from Greece. But the author goes on to note that while in this idyllic setting he ran across a shocking scene, and here's how he recounts it. During the first days our first days there, after having spent the whole morning at the beach, we stopped by one of the cafes for a frap. While there I asked the waiter where the restrooms were and was pointed towards some steep stairs down into a dimly lit, low ceilinged basement. Once downstairs I could see an odd glow emanating from a corner in the darkness. Squinting to adjust to the darkened room, I was able to see the light source. It was LeTouro's anemic version of an internet cafe, two old Apple computers on a thin, tiny table in a corner of of the depressing cellar. As I looked closer, I could see the dark silhouettes of two pudgy American kids playing video games with their round faces illuminated by screens just inches away from their faces, As I chanced into that cafe a couple more times over the week that we were there, those two kids were always in that basement with their illuminated faces. That's depressing. That's depressing. And yet that goes on constantly. Matter of fact, statistically, there's been this dramatic decrease in children's exposure to outside play. Why? Because they're engaged on inside electronics. There's been a failure of the ability to, to foster imagination, creativity, and experience of the world around them, because their world is wrapped up into this little screen in front of them. They are isolated. Now, well, again, we'll talk more about that, but exposure at an early age, as well as the massive exposure of teens, has other developmental consequences as well. The ability to concentrate, to have sustained thought, to reason. All of these are massive effects. Let me mention some of the sociological effects. Those are some of the physiological effects and effects on the mind. What are some of the social effects? Let me give you a few. First, it creates an individualistic mindset that fosters isolation rather than community. In other words, autonomy, which is funny, not in a funny sense, but because that is exactly the opposite of the pill they give to sell it. The whole idea of technology and social media is to create and foster community. The one thing it destroys is community and relationships. Not surprisingly, the computer revolution that really began with Apple, under the charismatic leadership of Steve Jobs, flowed in large measure from a spirit of rebellion. Steve Jobs was himself sympathetic and identified with much of the countercultural revolution ideals of the early 60s, which touted rejection of the establishment. Indeed, if you'll remember, those who have been around long enough, that was the entire early campaign of Apple Computer. It went like this. Let me read. Here's here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels. The troublemakers, the round pegs and square holes, the ones who see things differently. That actually was one of the key marketing campaigns of Apple. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify, or vilify them about the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward, and while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. That was the Apple campaign slogan. What I found interesting in that, or find interesting in that, is that there is an element in which that is true. In fact, that's exactly how Jesus and his apostles would have appeared to the first century culture in which they came, right? This crazy, radical, wacky rabbi. The apostles going out with this intensely... Strange message, breaking free from their culture and their religion as it was seen by the world at large. There, there is an element of that that's true. The difference is this, motivation and vision. Jesus' radical ministry was driven by obedience to the Father, was motivated by love and self-sacrifice, even death and atoning death on the cross for the redemption of others. It was to give himself as a sacrifice in perfect obedience to the will of the Father to bring about the salvation of others. Apple's radical attitude is obedient only to one's personal sense of mission, not at the price of self-sacrifice and love for others, but the establishment of your own identity. In fact, this precisely reflects the history of Apple and the history of Steve Jobs himself. Incredible. So one is it creates a sense of isolation, autonomy, an individualistic mindset that detaches rather than draws near Two, another social consequence. It dehumanizes people by diminishing the sense of personhood. It dehumanizes people by diminishing a sense of personhood. And if you're wondering, these are negative. There are some positive things that we'll look at down the road, of course. But I want to emphasize these because these are the ones that are most dominant. On this point, the medium fosters a sense of connection without physical presence. And that's huge. That's really huge. It fosters a sense of connection without physical presence. It is the nature of interaction via the Internet that inherently diminishes the reality of personhood, real humanity of the other person. There can be a tendency to only view the other person and other people in terms of their political position, religion, or some other identifying mark before we identify them as a person made in the image of God. One author identified this tendency uh, to see other people only by a label as this, that they're seen as the repugnant cultural other. <laughs> he, he, he abbreviated that by RCO. Repugnant cultural other. Commenting on this, the author... Uh, Alan Jacobs of How to Think says this. This is a profoundly unhealthy situation. It's unhealthy because it prevents us from recognizing others as our neighbor. This tendency is highlighted when we do not have to address a person face to face. We say things over Facebook and Twitter that would never be said in person. Now, of course, this is recognized even in Scripture, right? We have the parable of the Good Samaritan. There were many others who walked by him. They weren't aware of this person via the Internet, but by presence, and yet their heart was cold to them, and they treated him with disdain and indifference and were callous to his suffering. So it's not that the Internet creates that. It is that it provides a platform where it can be greatly intensified and amplified in our hearts, which is evident in so many ways. It, it makes us forget things like God's instructions through James when he's speaking of the tongue. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And it's much harder to embrace that image of God reality in all people in humanity when our only interaction with the person that we're responding to is through a computer or a phone screen. So there's a heightened tendency to see another person as merely an object to be contradicted, opponent to be defeated, an enemy to be exposed, or as a means of glorifying self. So that, that kind of thing is just fostered through the medium. And it also does this then, it fosters and feeds self-centeredness and idolatry. Again, the very nature of social media is founded on the pr- presentation of ourselves to others. Again, there are... There are positive uses of social media that we will cover in the future. I'm pointing out just one part, but the most pervasive part. It is the ubiquitous pull to publish to the world what we like, what we don't like, what we're doing, where we are, what we're wearing, who we're with, random thoughts we have, our opinions, our preferences, our experiences. That's the whole nature of social media is this, self-publication. To put myself out to the most maximum number of people that I can. It's self-promotion. It's the very nature of what it is. With this, there is also the ability and tendency to shape a view of ourselves that is selected, intentional, and the most flattering, or at the very least, guarded. In a way that we can't do through personal interaction. Just consider this, and again... This will be a whole message down the road. But Paul laid a cornerstone of our interaction with one another in these words. Listen. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Have this mind which was in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2. One of my favorite descriptions of humility is this. Self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. But even specifically this, biblically. It's self-forgetfulness in service to others. Self-forgetfulness in service to others. It is difficult to see how Facebook, Snapchat, Snapchat, Instagram, and whatever else there is for means for publishing ourselves, how it fosters a Christ-like characteristic when the whole design or primary usage is to put ourselves on display for others to see. Indeed, the very nature of social media in general is designed to encourage a preoccupation with self, a preoccupation with self, and with an invitation for others to join in with our preoccupation with self. Conversely, it can promote preoccupation with others, not out of concern to serve, but to compare. In other words, there is the constant urge to see what other people are doing, where they are, what they're experiencing, wearing, etc., Not as a means of serving them, but becoming either envious or depressed over what they have or are doing that you don't. Or what they're doing and you're not. Or who they're with and you're not. And so on. So it's reciprocal. One side creates their own selected self-image and picture of life. Others gaze on it with covetousness. It's no surprise that there has been a sharp and dramatic increase in depression and suicide among youth with the appearance of social media as a part of our culture. Direct correlation. Massive correlation. And a whole host of other things, too. And it corresponds, again, directly to the rise of social media. It encourages and facilitates as well cruelty and depression. The increase of depression among, I just mentioned this, youth and adults has been dramatic. It also has an insidious opportunity for cruelty through the forms of bullying, oppression, and manipulation. You heard of these terms. Revenge porn. In a hyper-sexualized culture, where every sexual escapade is filmed, it's then used to manipulate others and to do them harm. Bullying. Because people are constantly attached with no escape, particularly in our youth culture, ever from the oppression and the presence of all of their peers through the use of this device. It it produces massive depression, overwhelming oppression. There's no escape. The home that used to be a place of refuge behind closed doors, a sanctuary of family to enjoy one another's presence and to share is no longer that, because what goes with these youth in so many times, and often including their parents as well, is this little device that keeps them constantly attached to the world outside. So seriously. So what are, just to end this, some general principles that should guide us? And again, we'll talk about these things in more detail down the road. What are some general principles and guide us? Let me give you three. One is, as we think about, as Christians... What the internet is and social media and so forth, as we think about our interaction, which there's much good and healthy interaction too, but in light of the dangers that seem to be the most pervasive, the first general principle is this, that we must watch over our hearts. This is ancient wisdom, isn't it? Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We need to be rightly introspective and have spiritual awareness of the effect that our habits and relationship to technology and electronics is having on our affections. We need to be spiritually aware of what effect it has on our heart. We should pray often with David in Psalm 139, 20-something. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We should be diligent, then, to guard our hearts and to guard our minds. We need to, especially as Christians, and let me suggest this to you, we need doubly so as Christian parents for our children, that we're not unthinking about technology. Second is this. We need to watch over our hearts, firstly, and secondly, we need to have clear spiritual priorities and commitments. 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So we need to ask deeper questions, not what can I do, what do I want to do, but what should I do? What effect is what I do going to have on my heart and my affections, my worldview, my relationship with others? We need to ask ourselves those questions. Proper worship must be our priority. The, for The Father seeks true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and truth. So we ask ourselves questions like this. What is it that you truly hunger for? What is it that you truly hunger for? What is it, as you can review your day and the things, again, that preoccupy your mind, what is it that you're willing to sacrifice time, resources, and effort for? Because that will tell us what we worship. And that will tell us the things we love. When given the choice with any spare time, where is the first place you go? Time with the Father in prayer, scripture reading, or some activity that centers around a smartphone or tablet or a TV? That tells us where our desires are. But I would add this, the problem isn't really the draw of electronics. It isn't that we are completely satisfied with the pleasures of electronics and technology because we're not. You keep going back, you keep thinking one thing's going to be it, and you just want more and more and more and more and more, and it never really delivers what it promises. It isn't that we are so completely satisfied with the pleasure of electronics and technology. It is that we are so little satisfied with Christ. We have such a little sight of his glory and his beauty. We have such little sight of the majestic holiness and wonder of God and his work in this world, his work in Christ, his work in our own lives. That's the real issue. When, we're, when, when, when Christ is placed next to Facebook, Netflix, and Amazon, let's face it, he just isn't that appealing. Our hearts just aren't that excited. As a matter of fact, it would be a bummer and a discouragement to have to go spend an hour in prayer if we had to give up an hour on our phone or our tablet. So it tells us what we worship. When the truest expression of what we believe is, is the most satisfying and good for our souls is put to the test. The Bible just seems too boring, too difficult, and too much work with too little payoff. And so it's neglected. Basically, God just seems boring. Let me give a third, and this is the last one, of the spiritual, of what, how are we to respond? One is to be watch over our hearts, one is to have clear spiritual priorities, to know what it is that we worship. And the third is this, to break the opportunity for enslavement. And this is Matthew 5. Let me just read this. He says this, uh, you know it, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In other words, we need to be decisive in how we deal with sin. We need to break the spell that electronics has cast over many of us, over our culture at large, and even as a, the lives of many believers. We need to be willing, indeed, actually to say no to the ever-present, intrusive, and subtly controlling reality of electronics. One captured this enslaving nature of it in this way, and it mirrors the way that sin works in our hearts. This was a a very good statement. We love our devices and loathe what they do to us. We love our devices and loathe what they do to us. And so it is uh, with sin. We may loathe its consequences, and yet we love it. We may recognize the time that electronics kills, the distraction they are to our hearts and to mind, the way that they affect our attitude and interaction with others, maybe make temporary commitments sometimes to regulate use, but then we're back again. So we need to then have the self-control and the ability to break the spell, as it were, to say no, to set them aside, to put them in another room in the house, To say no to our children and imagine this, imagine this, and this came even from a secular author who emphasized this, which is so good. It's good to let our children be bored. Boredom is not the greatest evil in the world. It actually is helpful. It forces creativity, imagination, and interaction. And yet how many parents are spellbound by the fact that their kid might have nothing to do? And so they hand them a phone that they might, in fact, be bored and therefore become a problem and interfere with the parents' own agenda. We know that, don't we? It's a lot easier than it, to hand them a phone than it is to deal with them and teach them. And we're all guilty of that to some level. But one of the spiritual realities and principles that we need to apply is to recognize that and to just say, no, no by the spirit-enabled ability within us as Christians to say no to that temptation. Well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at some of those things more closely. We're going to look at the Internet and social media more closely in the weeks ahead. We're going to look at the Internet and pornography, particularly in relation to temptation, how we deal with temptation, and some other aspects as well. But let's think about these principles Let's think to ask those questions of the things that are evidence that our heart worships as we try to live holy, pursue Christ-likeness, and live out the reality of the gospel in our lives in a world that is taken with the Internet. Uh, let me pray. And then uh, actually before I pray, uh, I'm going to have a Kevin Joyce come up. Um, and then I'll pray afterwards. Kevin, why don't you go ahead and come on up. Kevin, as you know, recently, I, for those many of you who were here, uh, became, was baptized. He actually sat through the uh, membership classes and wanted to join, but knew that there needed to be the issue of obedience to the Lord and baptism. And so, three weeks ago or so, yeah, uh, he gave his testimony, as we all know, and uh, has decided to commit himself to membership uh, here to Newtown Bible. So, you know how we do this. Um, I'm going to say, no, you're not married yet, but this would be good practice. <laughs> you know that's my joke I say every time. So, he's... But this is, in fact, a reflection of your commitment to us and our commitment to you as a local expression of the body of Christ. So I'll make a statement to you, and then you just respond, I will. Will you hereby commit yourself to Christ and this local body to work toward unity? Not forsaking the assembly and serve wherever there is a need and particularly in those areas in which God has uniquely gifted you. I will. Will you commit yourself to faithfully lift up the needs and concerns of others, the church, and the community in prayer? I will. Will you commit yourself to the pursuit of spiritual growth in the Word and to encourage, reprove, and discipline others in love as God gives you opportunity? And will you commit your time, energy, and resources as God prospers you to the building up of this local expression of the body of Christ? Oh. And now let us confirm our commitment as well. Uh, to the congregation, you can just respond uh, with... We will. Will you commit yourselves to love and serve these by me or Kevin by meeting their needs as they come, to lift him up in prayer, to lovingly come alongside him in encouragement, discipleship, humble reproach, and service as the Lord gives you opportunity? Then, on behalf of the leadership of Newtown Bible Church, we welcome you uh, into uh, formal membership uh, here at Newtown Bible. Let me pray. Father, we're so thankful for how you build your church. We're so thankful for the the gift of every saint that you have brought here. We're thankful that we worship together, that we serve together, that we grow together, that you have designed true spiritual community as a primary means in how you facilitate and encourage and produce growth in our hearts. We thank you for Kevin. We ask you that you will continue to grow him and to use him among this body and that you would be so kind as to use us in his life as well as we all mature together into the image of Christ. We thank you again for your kindness to each one of us here in the gospel, for bringing us from darkness to light, the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And Lord, we do ask that you would make us wise as we look at these matters of social media and the internet and that we would navigate them with wisdom and holiness and with the consequence that we can more clearly bear the fruit of our spiritual pursuits of setting our minds on the things above individually and as a body. So we thank you and we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.